0: Hi, and welcome to this latest episode of SEPAD Pod, the sectarianism, proxies, and desectarianization podcast based at Lancaster University. Today, I'm joined by Robert Mason, Associate Professor and Director of the Middle East Studies Center at the American University in Cairo. Robert has written on a a range of things pertaining to to Middle East politics, beginning with, with the rivalry between Saudi Arabia and Iran, and then pretty much most things pertaining to Middle Eastern IR since then. Robert's one of the more plurif- uh, prolific uh, international relations of the Middle East scholars. I, I was just saying to him, I don't know how he has time to to write all of this stuff. So I'm sure you've, you've read his work in a number of different uh, outlets covering a range of different things. So I'm really looking forward to talking to him today. Robert, thank you so much for joining us.
1: Absolute pleasure. Thank you
0: it's great to have you here. I don't know how we're going to do this uh, this today. as I said in my intro your your back catalog, if you will is is so vast, so varied and so rich i'm I'm really looking forward to to trying to get to grips with with what's driving your your sort of intellectual curiosity, if I may
1: mm-hmm.
0: so um so let's give it a shot what What got you interested in Middle East politics in the first place, Robert?
1: Well, it's a good question, and I think it's a, a multi generational uh, question. Uh, well, first of all, I'm really interested in all things IR. And so, from a very young age, I actually come from a mixed family. My, my grandmother was French. She came across from France in 1945 on the first fishing boat out of Normandy. Uh, so, really, from a young age, I'm coming from a very uh, mixed background. And keenly aware of the uh, differences between states and how they interact um, was was something which I sort of took on board. And then throughout my teenage years, being keenly interested, not necessarily following the news, but certainly influenced by it. And then delving into really some quite heavy um, theoretical uh, books on on international relations, not really fully understanding it all at the time, but certainly influential in in what I was trying to focus in terms of my career plans and aspirations uh, going forward. And then I remember at school undertaking a, uh, an exercise. My teacher was Ukrainian, and she set us a, a task of trying to, uh, to draw or uh, visualize what's happening uh, during the, uh, the Iraqi invasion of Kuwait. So I was drawing the, the burning oil fields. Not really, really understanding what was going on in this situation. So I think that's the right. need of trying to understand
0: Middle East politics uh, later on in a much more detailed way. Wow, that that's fascinating. How old were you when you were asked to draw or to depict what was happening?
1: <laughs> well, exactly at a very young age. I think something like eleven. Wow. wow! Twelve.
0: <laughs> what a what a very odd exercise, but but with
1: She was a fantastic teacher
0: though. She was great. Yeah, well, it had quite an impact on you then. So mm. you had this interest in international relations, international politics, given the the personal history, and then then you were asked to sort of delve into your artistic side of, of things. But then, what what did you go on to study at, at un- a university?
1: So I did a combined honours in international relations and politics uh, at Westminster in London, and then I took a postgraduate uh, qualification in diplomatic studies, uh, which was really interesting because that was more uh, working under diplomats who had extensive uh, experience in the field. Right. Um, So dealing with things like nuclear negotiations or international law uh, was absolutely fascinating. But then I took a few years out trying to... uh, figure out what I wanted to do longer term, worked in the private sector for a few years and then really it sort of crystallised that if I wanted to do international relations I should start with uh, some of the more intractable issues and so I decided to focus on Saudi and Iranian foreign policy.
0: Right, so it it was somewhat instrumental then in the sense of identifying one of the more pressing issues of international politics and trying to trying to understand why it was so intractable.
1: Absolutely. And because it was so multidimensional and it was playing out in the economic, security and political spheres, uh, I thought if I could get a grip on what's happening in the Middle East, it's really a large chunk of what uh, is important in terms of international relations and uh, how the global economy operates.
0: Yeah. Um, what What I really like about your your PhD as as a book. I can't say that I've read the thesis, but I I read the book when it later came out with uh, with I B Taurus. Is your your approach to to Saudi Iranian relations is is somewhat different to to others from from myself, from Banafshe Kenush, from Lawrence Rubin, uh, um, and and others. You you tend to focus on the the the, the economic side of things and the. the the role of of natural resources, of of energy. Can you tell those people who've not read your book a little bit about what you try to do in it, please?
1: So it's true that I do focus on economic factors, and by that I'm talking about how age, trade, investments, uh, what's known as realpolitik, how these strategic investments and relationships with third-party states uh, influences things like spheres of influence and balance of power, but to say it's all economic, um, there are significant components within it which go on to talk about political issues, sure, strategic yeah. issues, and, and these other aspects as well. So it's really a starting point. And understanding the economic component is, is really essential. Um, but also it's balanced out by insights into geostrategy and ideology as well, um, which also come out, I think, quite strongly. And it's something I've also adopted in other papers. So I looked at Israel-Palestine as well on a similar basis, the economic factors uh, in, in the conflict. And it really tells you a lot about what is economic and what isn't economic, and finding uh, the way forward uh, based on these kinds of uh, modalities, if you like.
0: Yeah and I I certainly didn't mean to do you a disservice in the book um I I think what's what's really interesting is is how you you situate those fundamental issues the the real issues of of economics and and state politics within broader efforts of, of sort of cultivating foreign policy and and broader national identities and, and ideological struggles which is which is incredibly different to to those other approaches that tend to focus on on geopolitics and religion so it it makes a number of really interesting contributions to those those debates. How did you find it as you were as you were writing at a time when when this this rivalry was becoming increasingly important in shaping global politics? It's quite a a challenge in working on something so amorphous.
1: Certainly is, but I think field research and looking at the empirics of, uh, of both states, traveling through Iran and Saudi, and understanding the, the psychology behind some of the decision making and uh, how the states had interacted historically was was really. Uh, importance and then the evolving uh, side of how sanctions were biting uh, in the Iranian case and how there's an internationalization of their relationships particularly towards uh, the east in Asia and so on um, was also very uh, enlightening as well
0: so that that book came out in 2014 if I'm correct.
1: Around that time, yeah.
0: Yeah. how How has it evolved? How do you How do you see the rivalry between the two states evolving since 2014? Obviously, we've we've seen that the fallout from the Arab uprisings. We've seen increasing conflict in Yemen and Syria. A new regime, kind of, I guess. In in Riyadh, how has the the rivalry evolved? Would you say?
1: Well, I'm actually looking at this right now through various papers and uh, and, and publications. Uh, I think it's becoming. Uh, very different on a number of levels. It's becoming more uh, international in its uh, in, in the confrontations, and that certainly played out after the Arab risings uh, in a number of weakened states uh, through uh, proxy conflicts. Uh, it's becoming internationalised through um, engagement with a broader range of uh, allies um, and, and trying to uh, influence in some of these states in terms of alliance building. Um, but it's also um, changing, according to, of course, the U.S. Uh, foreign policy in the Middle East and how that's uh, impacted, particularly the construction of, of MISA. Um, I just read today, actually, it looks like Egypt is pulling out of this uh, organization. But certainly there's an interest in building this counter-Iranian uh, alliance from the U.S. side uh, and the Saudi side. Um, and so it's becoming a, a more intractable uh, and certainly um, Playing out uh, in, in different theatres,
0: and that that suggests to me that it's going to be increasingly difficult to try and get some type of diplomatic resolution or some type of of cooling off of tensions.
1: It's, it's certainly complex. Um, I, I do like to try to be optimistic in these things, and my research is looking at, in fact, ways to try to de-escalate in some of these situations, uh, not only. Uh, the Saudi-Iranian tensions, but also uh, wider uh, Middle East uh, challenges. Uh, So looking at the Qatar crisis, for example, looking at the uh, Israel-Palestine conflict, and then looking at uh, Saudi-Iran as well, and, you know, in terms of uh, envisaging how this could play out, I think as long as you can have some kind of positive movement in one area, you can actually feed into Positive changes in another, uh, so there's certainly potential there. Um, it's just unfortunate that sometimes the political will is lacking.
0: So, what areas might you might you identify as as areas for possible um, uh, diplomatic manoeuvrings or or longer term rapprochement? If you can share a couple, perhaps.
1: Well, certainly, I think the Qatar crisis is one of those areas which could uh, be resolved relatively easily. I mean, this is a an Arab-Arab relationship, um, which, providing there could be a, a compromise or some kind of a negotiation there, uh, I think there could be a series of de-escalatory uh, measures uh, put in place. Now, whether that's going to happen up until uh, the World Cup um, is, is debatable, of course. Yeah. And certainly, um, both sides seem to be rather entrenched in, in their viewpoints and, and how they've managed to adapt to the circumstances. Uh, But that's certainly one area which uh, could provide perhaps more stability. Um, But amidst what else is happening in the region in terms of Algeria and Sudan, you know, the range of complexities and challenges is actually uh, growing. It's it's becoming much more complex in a very dynamic region uh, to move ahead with some of these kinds of negotiations with a lot of unknowns uh, at this point. But even Israel-Palestine, I mean, U.S. policy, of course, has been uh, rather focused on moving ahead unilaterally in this area, um, and that's certainly complicated matters right, in terms of negotiations. Um, but even if the direct Saudi-to-Iranian uh, changes, I think, could be made in certain areas in order to uh, reduce the kinds of tensions that we've spent the last few years. There was, um, and even when it comes to Saudi-Iranian uh, tensions, I think there's areas which, within that dynamic, can be managed. Uh, for example, uh, de-escalatory measures, primarily uh, perhaps concerning the Yemen conflict, uh, could be one area which could be uh, addressed.
0: Right, and I, I think it's going to be really interesting to see what what those measures might look like on the ground, and 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 how trust building processes can be can be put in place. Uh, one of the reasons why why I'm perhaps slightly less optimistic than you is because of the the way in which this this rivalry is starting to spread out into to different regions, and you've done a, a great deal of work on on how I guess. Gulf states broadly are are playing out in the the Horn of Africa. So can you tell us a bit about how how the Horn of Africa has become interlinked with with Gulf politics?
1: Well, I think it's quite a long story here. Um, I mean, what we've had over uh, the span of centuries, really, is is this idea of interregionalism, this Red Sea uh, broader region, which is linked up uh, with the Gulf states, what, what has become the Gulf states. Uh, so, as far back as the Queen of Sheba to so the hijrat, um of Muslims moving from Western Arabia to uh, Abyssinia, uh, and uh, the development of trade links um, across uh, the Red Sea uh, has really provided a lot of historical context. But there's a lot of modern changes taking place. So, for example, Djibouti is incredibly strategic and important for a variety of countries and has been uh, for the last decade or so. Uh, for the U.S., China, Japan, France, and the E.U., and it looks like that Saudi Arabia will set up a base there, too, uh, quite soon. It's been important over the last decade in terms of growing concerns over food security uh, in the Gulf states. Uh, and Saudi Arabia has been negotiating with Eritrea and Ethiopia to bring uh, their uh, conflict to an end. Um, and Sudan, obviously, moving from the Iranian sphere of influence to the Saudi sphere of influence um, through uh, means of realpolitik again. Of course, there's question marks over that now. Omar Bashir has been overthrown. Yeah. Uh, what you might call another, another uh, Mubarak moment uh, for, for states uh, such as Saudi Arabia. Um, and also the strategic um, significance of Bab el mandeb as a choke point as an area which has experienced piracy in the past, it's relevant for energy security. Um, And for these reasons, and its growing economic uh, significance, um, this whole uh, Red Sea area is is becoming, and of course linked to the Yemen conflict, is becoming uh, relevant in terms of base construction, uh, power projection, and alliance building.
0: I think it's it's absolutely fascinating, and uh, yeah, I, I look forward to hearing more about this in in the coming months as, as you start to explore it further. But we're we're sort of moving swiftly through both time and space here. So I wonder if we can go up to to Israel Palestine. What was what was your driving what was driving your interest in in Israel Palestine? Well, I think it's
1: the number one issue. Uh, in the Middle East. I know it's moving down the priority list for a lot of states in the region at the moment, but certainly from a traditional Middle East politics perspective, it's absolutely imperative to understand the dynamics of Israel-Palestine conflict in order to situate uh, other foreign policies of both regional actors and even some smaller states.
0: Right. And and your your approach to this then is, is predominantly based in an economic understanding, or or how do you try and engage with these questions?
1: Well, because my PhD was focused on the economics, uh, I was intrigued to see how uh, investments and and aid played out in the uh, conflict resolution mechanisms uh, in this theatre. Um, so, I undertook uh, research with the Quartet at the time, uh, talking to the Movement and Access Advisor, talking to the Israelis, talking to the Palestinians about what it would take, in effect, to move uh, forward in terms of uh, conflict resolution measures. Uh, and it was absolutely fascinating to, to gain on the ground experience uh, in this case and understand uh, the dynamics of how trade and aid and uh, foreign. Uh, assistance and uh, and other business activities on the Palestinian side uh, could significantly enhance the prospects yeah. uh, for stabilisation at least.
0: So, so what did you find out then from talking to these these actors in the quartet? Was there any type of was there any hope? Was were there any missed opportunities? Do you think?
1: Well, plenty of missed opportunities, but also some. Uh, some advancements in in terms of improving uh, access uh, for Palestinians across certain checkpoints at the time. Certainly, there was still a whole host of political issues, uh, which Tony Blair, I think, was responsible for and negotiating at a higher level. Um, But generally speaking, uh, highlighting also the immense challenges, such as the uh, territorial uh, integrity of the or lack thereof, for the West Bank and the Gaza Strip. So things like uh, joining these two areas uh, with some kind of corridor, land corridor, using train or road access right. to enhance the prospects of a single unitary actor which is able to develop export capacity uh, to have SME construction and development uh, and uh, having some kind of uh, integrity there. Of course, with settlement activity since uh, it's becoming a much more remote prospect, but it was still very, very important to explore these issues, and still with flexibility uh, being highlighted, I think on both sides, uh, I still uh, remain uh, somewhat optimistic on this topic.
0: Right. I'm, I'm going to ask a, a slightly difficult question now, Robert, so please forgive me and, uh, and don't hold it against me in the future, but I wonder... You've got two issues here that you've spent a, a good deal of time working on, the, the Saudi Iran issue and the Israel-Palestine issue. Two two issues that are of essentially a, a paramount importance in understanding regional dynamics and and two issues that have proved to be incredibly difficult in actually getting some kind of diplomatic movement to to, to facilitate reconciliation and, and peace building. What do you think are the, the similarities and, and differences between these two approaches, or these two sets of challenges?
1: Well, that's a very uh, intriguing question. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and certainly uh, one which requires a, an extended uh, response, I think. Well, I think from a political perspective, what we have is um, actors uh, in uh, alliances uh, which make the whole situation incredibly complex um, the the whole dynamics, of course, are somewhat different. We have a religious-orientated uh, perspective when it comes to the status of Jerusalem and the international interest concerning that. Um, but there's also, of course, the security of Israel uh, in the Israel-Palestine conflict, uh, which, of course, is held as being of utmost importance. And then the whole situation becomes regionalized uh, security. Um, environment, which we need to consider. So, of course, that requires some uh, coverage of uh, Syria and Iranian intervention in Syria. Uh, It means we need to look at Hezbollah and Hamas uh, and uh, the kinds of uh, security uh, relationships between the IDF and these other other actors, Um, and compare that with Saudi and Iran, of course. Um, you have something similar. You have a very sort of statist approach from the Saudi side. And um, what Iran looks at is more of engagement um, with uh, peoples or nations uh, in terms of the construction of certain militia forces, popular militia forces in places like Iraq um, and uh, Lebanon with uh, Hezbollah and its relationship there. So there is some kind of Comparable nature in terms of how these states are um, perhaps asymmetric in some ways in their conflict relationships, um, but certainly the actual issues, the uh, the detailed uh, on the ground issues are certainly somewhat uh, different.
0: Yeah, it just it got me thinking as you were talking about the the structural contexts and the the structures that were. I guess, in some case, restricting the capacity of actors to operate within those particular contexts, within those those arenas. And it, it just got me thinking that there were some interesting uh, possible similarities across the two vastly different cases, as you say.
1: Yeah, I, I do think that those uh, actors are uh, uh, heterogeneous, and, uh, and I think that's part of the complexity, that if there was... Uh, perhaps more awareness uh, of how uh, Iranian and Hezbollah uh, rationale and uh, encroachment and uh, experience when it comes to Israel-Palestine conflict affects uh, the sort of regional dynamic as well, then perhaps uh, other international actors uh, might be uh, looking at a more nuanced approach when it comes to engagement. Uh, which is really what I, I call for in in, in my uh, in my book. That yeah. I'm promoting this idea of active engagement. We've had for a long time containment strategies aimed at Iran, at uh, increasing sanctions and expecting the regime to capitulate. Uh, but if you know the history of the Iran, in terms of the Iran-Iraq War, its revolutionary ambitions and objectives, its political legitimacy. Um, and how it's been relatively successful at building up these militia forces in various uh, states, particularly over the last few years, uh, I think we would be looking at, a, as I say, a much more nuanced approach uh, which tries to create uh, more uh, broader alliances at addressing some of these intractable conflicts rather than this very divisive um, political agenda which is aimed at isolation. Yeah. Uh, and. Um, and ultimately, perhaps, regime
0: change. And I think this is where your work is perhaps most valuable and most interesting and most important, that because it, it deals with the the international relations of the middle east it can offer these potential solutions and it can it can deconstruct the complexities of the the diplomatic wrangling and 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 the diplomatic issues the structural issues that the international relations in its its various forms is best equipped to do so this is where i think you, you're yourself from the the pieces that you've written on, on Oman and, and regional security, all the way through Saudi Iran and Israel Palestine, is really finding traction, offering potential avenues to do things differently.
1: Yeah, I think it's absolutely a vital role for academics to explore these uh, perhaps uh, slightly uh, different aspects, uh, such as, for example, the Peninsula Shield Force and how Oman had tried to um lobby for an increase of forces up to a hundred thousand and seeing how US forces in the region was about the same level about a hundred thousand troops at that time um so during the Obama administration seeing uh, the policy of trying to encourage more localized forces in order to uh, reduce the u.s uh, burden in this in this case uh, in the Middle East um, really showed that what Imam was trying to do um, was what would eventually turn into um, collective forces uh, under MISA. Um, But, you know, there's obviously issues related to bilateral relationships, which undercut and undermine these kinds of uh, moves. And there's always the risk that uh, these forces become less about collective security and more about promoting a single foreign policy agenda. So there is a a danger there. Um, But the idea of a combined force um, in the way we've seen under NATO, for example, is certainly uh, one which could encourage uh, this kind of broader uh, regional cooperation, which I think is absolutely necessary. Yeah,
0: and and these are issues that we could spend all day talking about, and there have been workshops and conferences that, that we've been at that have tried to unpack some of the the issues around these. But Robert, we've taken up so much of your time. So thank you so much for for speaking to us today. It's been absolutely fascinating. And, and I, for one, look forward to, to reading what is coming out uh, of your mind in the next few months and, and years, because it's been really insightful in helping me think about about regional politics, if, if no one else. So thank you so much. And uh, I look forward to speaking to you soon.
1: Thank you very much. Great to catch up.
0: Thanks, Robert. Until right. next time.
1: Thank you.